Hi, this is Amanda Dolan and welcome to the Mental Society. Today I am joined by Dr. Joan Iflin. Dr. Iflin has been creating breakthroughs in recovery, recovery from food addiction since 1999, and she is the lead author um, discussing the first scholarly description of processed food addiction and the definition of addictive foods. She also has a really amazing online community called ARC that I'm sure she will share with us to provide support and education for those experiencing food addictions and who are ready to heal from that and, and heal their bodies as well. So Dr. Iflin, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate this. I am so grateful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I We spoke a little bit before I hit record and this is relationships with food are, are huge for me. Um, and as listeners and people that know me, you know, I've, I've struggled with my weight on and off. And I think so often I was told like food addiction is not a real thing. It's all about willpower. Food addiction is just an excuse to overeat or, or whatever. <laughs> you have a whole book on 2000 citations. This book is built on 2000 studies. So like if you were, what's the most simple way to describe to someone what what food addiction is and how it is this is related to anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, which I think are the oh ones we most hear about. A, just a super great place to start. Um, addictions, all addictions, including processed food addiction, are characterized by specific alterations in the brain. Specifically, the reward pathways are putting out too much craving neurotransmitter, dopamine, serotonin, cannabinoid, opioid, those pathways are putting out so much cravings that they're controlling behavior. The stress pathway is also hyperactivated. They're kind of in a dance. The stress activates the addiction, addiction activates stress. And both of those pathways are, are able to go over to the behavior centers in the brain and actually latch on to those receptors and control behavior. And here's the key piece. They're totally bypassing the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is the only place in the brain and it's tiny. The frontal lobe mm -hmm. is only 2% of the brain. And it is where we're supposed to be, quote unquote, making decisions. And it's not getting blood flow because the rest of the brain is so hyperactive. So addiction is when you can't make a decision. The decision-making process has been shut down in your brain and the addiction is controlling your behavior. The hyperactive reward centers are controlling behavior. This is a condition and it doesn't have anything to do with willpower. You can't willpower your way out of reward centers that are pumping out too much craving neurotransmitter. So that's uh, the neurology of addiction, but how would you know, how would somebody like a professional diagnose it? Well, we've adapted the diagnostic criteria for alcoholism to eating. I validated this approach in my doctoral work and we now have a, a self quiz. It's not a diagnosis, but a self quiz on our, our website, uh, Food Addiction Reset. I'll make sure I, I link that in the show notes so people yeah. can find that easy. 
Okay, so if you would like, Amanda, we can just run through the 11 diagnostic criteria. Yeah, let's and go. And then your listeners. I would, I, I may just like say yes or no along this. I'm, I'm going to say that chances are yes to all, or not, maybe not all of them, but. You know, I it's feel... a, a lot of people have all of them. The, the tobacco industry started this when they took over processed foods in the mid 1980s. They've been pumping us full of addictive substances without our agreement for over 30 years. And so I have done analyses of these criteria, like what is the evidence that people are experiencing them? Over 80% of Americans are experiencing a severe addiction to processed foods, of course, without their knowledge. So let's do this, huh? Yeah. Now, criteria one, unintended use. You wake up, you have a plan, I'm not gonna eat that today, and by 10 o'clock you're in front of the vending machine eating it. You open the box, I'm only gonna eat one or two. The box is gone by the time you go to bed. Um, I'm going to go to this event, but I'm not going to eat. And then you're eating. Or I'm gonna drive home without stopping for fast food, but then you find yourself stopping. Those are all examples of unintended use. We have failure to cut back is number two. Um, we see we have evidence that 100% of people after losing weight start to regain it within three years. So the, everybody's got that failure mm -hmm. to cut back. 40 some percent of the country is obese. Another 40% is overweight. They are trying to cut back. You have a big portion of the population dieting at any time, but it doesn't work. That's failure to cut back. Most people will will meet that criteria. Number three is time spent. So you're you're going out in the middle of the night to get fast food, or you're stopping, not you know you start out stopping maybe a couple of times a week for fast food, but then it becomes a daily thing, and then it's two stops, and it just grows. So time spent can also be in your head. Um, you're planning you're thinking about, you're craving, uh, and then you're going to get it, and then you're eating it, or maybe you're hiding. It takes time to hide. You hide the right, stuff, right. and then you hide yourself while you're eating it. It's embarrassing to eat mm -hmm. a, a big quantity of processed foods, even though it's not your fault. And, and then you're zoning out. You're recovering. Uh, you're sleeping it off. That's number three. Number four is cravings. And we do have evidence that cravings coincide with uh, weight status. So that means most people are experiencing them. And then you get into three behaviors. Failure to fulfill roles and people can't get on the floor to play with their kids or they're too depressed to apply for promotions or they, um, they're too sick to finish school. Failure to fulfill roles. Number six is interpersonal problems. The person wants you to quit and you can't quit. Your partner, um, you just can't wait for your partner to go to bed so you can go to the laundry room and get whatever you hid there and eat it in private. You, you're listening, you're trying to listen to your partner, but your head is so craving that you can't really focus on what somebody else needs or connect with them. So it's very isolating. Number seven is activities given up. Uh, you used to go to bowling, but now you're too overweight and tired to go. 
you used to go to your quilting club or you used to go and volunteer, but now you'd rather go home because the cravings are so intense and, and just eat by yourself. And over half of Americans now eat and live by themselves. It's this very isolating disease. Okay, then you get to number eight, which is hazardous use. You know you shouldn't eat that because it's going to shoot your blood sugar up and you eat it anyway. You're already significantly overweight and you eat it anyway. You are driving down the road, uh, you know, driving with your pinky while you put the fast food in. So uh, or you are so big now that you can't see your feet and you trip and fall, um, but you're still eating. Those are all examples of hazardous use. Okay, then in um, the last three criteria, you're seeing the physical consequences of this. Okay. Number nine is use in spite of knowledge of consequences. 93% of Americans have high triglyceride, cholesterol, glucose, blood pressure, or waist to hip ratio, and they're still eating. Tolerance, where you're eating more and more over time and getting less pleasure out of it. We see that on a, on a population-wide basis. You see over the years, the percentage of processed foods that people are eating just keeps climbing. And now we're at 73%. So people are only eating 27% of their calorie intake in food. The rest of it is these food-like drugs or, yeah. And then the last criteria, number 11, is withdrawal. And we do see, like we see descriptions in the keto community because they do get mm -hmm. off processed foods and they call it keto flu. That's processed food withdrawal. And it does have a definite syndrome and it's headaches and lethargy and irritability and depression. Um, so there's a very well established withdrawal syndrome. And, but with those withdrawals, like there's a definitive, maybe not the same end for everyone, but those yeah. withdrawal symptoms will end and you'll likely yeah. feel better after you get through that. Yes, really rough a, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. One of the things that happens during those four days is that the cravings become more intense, but then at some point they just go away. It's so fun. Then for me at age 44, I remember exactly where I was sitting when I experienced that at the, the first time I'd gotten off of sugars and flowers, but I didn't even know it was possible for cravings to stop. I can remember going to kindergarten and craving intensely because I couldn't just go out into the kitchen mm -hmm. and make myself a white bread, margarine, sugar sandwich anytime I wanted. So yes, it stops. That's not normal. Remember criteria number four, cravings. It's a sign of addiction. It's not normal. And like, what would you say though to somebody that said, well, I was craving red meat because my iron was is low. And so that's why I'm craving. Yeah. It, it, you're making an excellent point, which is what you're, if you're craving an addictive substance versus something that's clearly a food, um, that's that's just a completely different phenomenon. 
So the, the foods for which we have evidence that they are addictive substances, as opposed to food, any kind of sugar or sweetener, anytime you concentrate a sugar, you're hyperactivating mm -hmm. dopamine. Does that include like the NutraSweet or? Yes, all Splenda the artificial or... sweeteners. Mm -hmm. So it's all of anything that makes your food taste sweet, whether it's sugar yeah, then... or Splenda. It's not great. For yeah, you. all the artificial sweeteners, but also um, if you've been sensitized, like we all have been, we know that the tobacco industry, once they came into processed foods, really attacked small children and they got a uh, control over Kool-Aid. They have had, they had had control over Hawaiian punch since 1963. So they were able to demonstrate for the rest of the industry, the value of addicting small children to sugar. And you see in the, we'll get this, this is a separate topic, but there's the evidence for this is just chilling. So you have sugar, you have flour, especially gluten, uh, flour containing gluten. Gluten is a natural morphine. Uh, plants have natural endorphins in them. It's a, it's a kindness from mother nature that we don't just eat because we won't die if we do, but we eat because we get a little endorphin rush, a little one. We, we attach pleasure to doing that. So it's a rewarding survival activity. But when you concentrate a plant, when you take the fiber out, when you turn it into a powder, or you turn it into a liquid, or you dry it, um, you create a drug. These are the same processes that are used to create other drugs from plants. Opium is created from poppies, and right. cocaine is created from uh, uh, leaves, you know, the leaves of the bush. What do they do? They concentrate it, they extract, and then they create a powder. Well, that's flour. Never thought of it that way. It's interesting. Yeah, you can look at look at if it's it's if it's a plant and it's been concentrated in any way, processed in any way, you are moving it along that continuum to become addictive. So um, then you have excessive salt. We know that there's a withdrawal syndrome from excessive salt. And in really incredible research done at the University of Florida, Mark Gold, who's a past president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and head of the McKnight Brain Institute, this is very high quality research. He just saw that when more people in morphine withdrawal came into his clinics, they would just take the lid off the salt and pour it on their food. So salt has the ability to activate that opioid pathway. And then you have dairy. I, dairy is a substance that is designed to put a 100-pound baby calf to sleep. And I'm, I'm vegan, and, and I remember that I had cravings for dairy, like I, cheese in particular. Like I, and so many people have said, well, I would go vegan, but cheese. I love cheese. And it's always been interesting to me that like, well, I, I have to have cheese. Like that's the one, like cheese and bacon, right? Those are the two things that people want. And then you said that and I'm like, bacon has a lot of salt in it. And it's been. And high in fat. 
So, so there are four different casomorphines in dairy. Like this is raw milk coming right out of the organic cow is so powerful. And it's such a sedative that it can put a hundred pound calf to sleep. What are we doing ingesting that? Especially when you think about the parallel between you, you extract uh, whatever it is from the poppy and then you concentrate it into opium, you extract the casein from milk yeah. and you concentrate it into a cheese. It's just like, what were we thinking? <laughs> yes, it'll keep us alive, but we'll be somnolent for our yes. lives. Yes. So that's the sweeteners, flour, salt, dairy, were those the... And then uh, fats, excessive amounts of fat, excessive amounts. Um, we have really good new research showing that rats that are exposed to all the fat that they can eat, that they become addicted. It's just been, it's been beautifully laid out, the process by which their brains become hyperactive in the cannabinoid pathways. These are the same pathways that are activated by cannabis. They're named after cannabis, but they become altered in, um, in excessive fat consumption. And then, of course, caffeine and then food additives. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up, like, was it red dye? That, you know, that was what caused ADHD. That created hyperactivity in kids. And that was 30 plus years ago, I think. And yet we're still using that. Uh-huh, we are. You really, um, so my undergraduate degree is in politics and economics. And you really need that kind of background to understand what's going on, what's being done to us. And then I took an MBA from Stanford in 1978. And so the understanding of business models mm -hmm. uh, is also essential to understand what is being done to us? And um, I'm just hearing people say, and, and then I earned the PhD in addictive nutrition, but people look at like that background and that's the weirdest background for somebody involved in food. I know but it's, it's it, an I, essential it, background for somebody involved in food. Well, something that I, there's kind of two things that I always say. One, like follow the money, right? Like, Who's getting paid and, you know, are they getting paid more if we do it this way? Are they spending less? Whatever it is, where's the money? Who's getting the money? And then, you know, the other piece, and, and you and I kind of mentioned it, is the community around anything. Like, how are we experiencing the world together? And so... Yeah, these are two... Uh, yeah, process the processed food industry is obscenely profitable. Like tobacco was obscenely profitable for years. You take an absolutely worthless substance and you market it as if it had value. So for tobacco, we were told, oh, smoking is sexy. Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart flirting and smoking. We were told, like suffragettes, that the cigarette companies wanted to get women to smoke. So they told the suffragettes that smoking is rebellious. And if you're going to want the, you know, the same 
right as a man you would have to smoke like a man they told us with the marlboro man that smoking is masculine it was all just total deception fantasy smoking is disgusting and deadly it's repulsive and deadly but they create the the advertisers the marketers were able to create this whole fantasy you've come a long way baby um and they did the same thing with these processed foods so you look at the commercials for uh, Kool-Aid, for example, and Kool-Aid dude, the Kool-Aid man, is able to, you know, flummox adults, more powerful than adults. And you were really cool if you ate, if you drank Kool-Aid. So well, this is part of the fantasy. You know, I I remember that one of my friend's moms growing up, she said that she started smoking young because she was told that if she would smoke, she would stay thin and being thin yes. was, yes. was, you know, crucial for everything. And well, you know, and I have opinions about like the number on the scale versus. It's just, you, that's like, just a, a trigger for the diet industry profit. Um, because for me, like, how do I feel after I've eaten a meal? Mm-hmm. That is, that's what I've tried to focus on in my journey to health. Yeah. I don't know, you yeah. know, and it's a journey. And I think that that's important to note is that this is not something that is going to change overnight for you. If you yeah. are eating a whole lot of sugar, it's, if you quit, which would be fantastic probably for all of us if we stopped eating sugar. But if you quit and you eat sugar again, that doesn't mean that you've failed. That means that you are. Oh, that means that you were human. given a wicked, wicked, severe, deeply embedded addiction because once tobacco came into processed foods, they were prevented from marketing cigarettes to children the Joe Cool Camel cartoon campaign mm-hmm. was stopped, but nobody was pre- preventing them from marketing sugar to one-year-olds. And they went for it with, mm-hmm. I mean, they went for it viciously. Lunchables, these children's convenience products, uh, they went for the children viciously. So this is deeply seated. It, we've never had an addiction you know, four different categories of substances, yeah. all four reward pathways hyperactivated in small children. So we've never had an addiction that was mm-hmm. as deeply seated as this. And now, you know, and then the food industry is able to continue to provoke us, surround us with food stimulation, make it available everywhere, make it cheap in the addiction business model. And and then, then the, the weight loss industry and the medical services industry comes along and says, well, you should be able to get that weight off. No, you need very specific long-term treatment for a deep addiction. <laughs> it, you know, we have the research. We know it only takes, and you know, a rat can start binging on a chocolate um, mixture in on day one. So a rat's... Wow. Uh, you know, a month of a rat, uh, a, a day of a rat's life is equal to about a month of a human life. But we, um, it only takes a maximum of like six months to become addicted. 
with all the brain alterations. This is rat research. So they're looking exactly into the brain. It only takes about six months. And we've been subjected to this for over 30 years. So the idea that you would be able to give up these substances easily is just ridiculous. You know, if you've been drinking alcohol since you were two and snorting cocaine and smoking weed, and then somebody says, well, you ought to be able to give that up after 35 years, that you would see how absurd that is. But that's what we're being blamed for and told every day, psychological abuse. I I had to look because I, I quit smoking relatively recently, but I'm at seven months, 28 days and 15 hours without a cigarette. So I'm just going to celebrate that again. I'm, I'm like, yay. Absolutely. Um, but it makes me think of like, I don't ever have to smoke a cigarette to live. And right? you but I have to eat. mistake breathing for smoking. No. But people mistake eating these substances for eating. And now, and then you have this whole, I think it's a, it's just a weird diagnosis called eating disorders. Like if somebody's snorting cocaine, you don't it's say they have disorder. snorting disorder. Or <laughs> if they're shooting up heroin, you don't say, oh, they have an injection disorder. No, this is, this is part of the, this is just a tribute to the brilliance of the tobacco slash processed food industry to disguise what's really on oh they have an eating disorder no they have food addiction um and so then it's really just changing the foods and, and but all it's the much, chewing the so the, so- the lapse starts with uh, with some kind of food stimulation or stress uh, it's a reminder you see somebody else eating it it's available to you you know, this is why all the break rooms and workplaces have processed foods in them now. So it starts really with uh, some kind of, it, the broad category is a cue, but it's a trigger, it's a reminder, it's a signal, it's some kind of stimulation. The food itself or stress can do this too. And then your brain floods, those those reward centers are trained to react by flooding the brain with cravings. That is not your fault, but it takes a lot of training. One, to start to recognize the cueing and the triggering, and two, to start to either avoid it or train your brain not to react to it. You can do that through a process called neurosculpting. And this takes years. You've got, you've got all four pathways addicted. And you might only be able to manage getting off the sugar for your first year. And then maybe you can get off the flour, you know, with the serotonin and gluteomorphine. You know, that might take another effort. So uh, this is a highly complex addiction. And it's very, very deeply rooted. In my case, every cell in my brain developed in an addicted brain. And that, you know, I think of like food as one of the first ways that we're comforted Uh or rewarded or, you know, like you did such a great job going to the potty. Here's an M&M. Yep. 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 Or like, oh, you're sick today. Here's chicken soup. It'll make you feel better. 
Well, chicken soup's not addictive. I'm, I'm but, not, um, but but I'm like saying my like mom used to give is... me ginger ale. Yes. Yeah, you can have a ginger ale because you're not feeling well. And it's and so we learn to associate food with comfort and food with love. And then also when we go to big family gatherings or church potlucks, food and relationships and connection are tied together. And if you think about when somebody dies or has a baby, it's here, let's bring them food. And while Uh, that food may not be addictive, I think it speaks to how important food is in our lives. You're you're just hitting on an incredibly important point, which is unlike smoking, these substances are deeply embedded in our rituals. The delusion around the role of these substances in in our daily lives, our health, it's it's incredibly um, hidden. So, for example, I was just talking to somebody who manages a health food store. She said, um, people come in, everybody who comes in has no idea that food could be playing a role in their disease. You go to the doctor, like I have a, a friend who conquered Crohn's. He was in agony. He would, this is a very vivid story, but he would, after work, he would drive to the parking lot of the urgent care center and try to deal with the pain. And he said, well, at least if it gets too bad, I'll be able to just get from my car to this, just go in agony in the parking lot. Well, finally, he figured out to change his food and it went away pretty much. And he was so excited. He had a doctor's appointment. He goes into the doctor and he says, I figured it out, it's the food. And the doctor says, food has nothing to do with it and I've got a new medication for you. So you have the complicity. This is incredibly profitable for this pharmaceutical industry. Well, I think about when I when I shifted to a vegan diet and I cut dairy out, I had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and I was taking Lyrica, which is a pain medication that's addictive and mind altering, but it, it helped. It worked for my pain. And I remember it was probably five or six days into no dairy. And I had, I I guess, missed my morning dose of medication. And I didn't realize it because I went about my day and I wasn't in pain. And I got home and I looked at my, like to take my next dose. And I was like, Oh, I didn't take my first dose this morning. Isn't that interesting? And then I never took it again. Yeah. And I and then I did research and I looked and dairy is hugely inflammatory in our bodies. And nobody right. told you. No. Nobody nobody says, "Oh, well, maybe Amanda like your pain might just be inflammation from dairy." No one no All one told of me that. these foods are inflammatory. Nobody told me um, that rage could be caused by sugars and flowers. And that's where I got into this field 27 years ago is I got off sugars and flowers to lose weight and my rage stopped. And my parents were ragers. We were physically abused as children when they were flying into their rages. I was determined not to raise my children that way. 
I never hit them, but I did fly into rages all the time. Not, I don't know if it was all the time, but it was awful. And I wanted it to stop. And so I did therapy and then I did a 12-step group and I did a women's healing group. And fortunately, in, in one of the 12-step groups, a woman heard the sugar driving my rage and she persuaded me to go into food addicts and recovery. And that's why January 1st, 1996, I was giving up sugars and flowers. This is why I'm so grateful to you, Amanda, for inviting me here. Two things. One, we have great research now, the two review articles. That means a review article looks at a whole bunch of oh, other wow. studies and says that this is a very consistent finding in all these other studies. So I think we could call it true. And uh, the both of these review articles looked at brain image studies of people who had gotten eating disorder diagnoses. Well, guess what all of those brain image studies showed? I have a guess about frontal alterations. Addictive alterations. Your frontal cortex or frontal Yeah, that the, the hyperactive reward, hyperactive stress, hypoactive frontal lobe. Eating disorders don't exist. They are processed food addiction. And they're being treated by suggesting that people moderate. This is cruel. It's cruel to say to somebody who's addicted, violently addicted, oh, moderate. But it's because the eating disorder profession doesn't know how to get them off. Right. You say, okay, stop eating this. They go binge on it. The stress is just too great. That's not how you get a deeply addicted person off of a substance. You surround them with community, with love, with caring, with knowledge, and with a tremendous amount of skills. Now we teach 149 skills. In your because I grew up in an addicted brain, I didn't get life management skills and I didn't need the life management skills that my parents were exhibiting. So that's a number one. Eating disorders, people with the diagnosis of an eating disorders, their brains are behaving in an addiction pattern. Yeah. So, yeah, I just want, I just got to get that out. And, you know, I know you, you mentioned 12 step groups and I know there's Overeaters Anonymous and there are all of those things. And while I don't know that those, I don't, and you're shaking your head, which makes me, those aren't the, the answer, except that there's community there and people of a like mind who want a similar There's change in their there, life. But those communities are very judgmental and we it's... get traumatized people out of those communities. So here's, here's how it works. You walk in there with no skills. Day one, you're given a food plan and you're required to follow it or be fired. Well, you can't follow it. They, they haven't given you the skills and they haven't given you the time and they haven't given you a strategy. It's just, oh, follow this food plan or you have to sit in the back of the room. And then you're humiliated when the inevitable lapse comes. Lapsing decreases slowly over time as you build skills, as you get the queuing under control, as you build your food production skills, as you build your socializing skills, your relationship management skills, your emotional skills, your sleep skills, 
your mental thinking skills. There's just 149 skills before you can consistently uh, avoid a lapse. But what happens in those communities, you have a lapse and you're humiliated. You're traumatized. You have to stand up in front of everybody and say, I failed and get a new chip, sit in the back of the room for 90 days, un not allowed to talk when, when actually that's when you need to talk the most. You, when you lapse, you should be met with deep compassion. You didn't ask for it. You didn't ask to have these hyperactivated reward centers. Deep compassion and some strategies for to unpack what happened and be be held, just held, comforted until you can figure out what to do differently next time. So, like I, I think relapse or lapse, as you said, is part of recovery. Full yes, stop. it's normal to lapse. It's rare, like one out of a thousand persons will and, be able to say, oh, that's the problem. I'll get it out of my house and I'll stop making clean food and never and, look back. And I one think out that, of a thousand. And I think that that's whether we're talking food or cigarettes or alcohol or cocaine, like there will be, and I don't like the term backslide, like it is a- It's not, it's, it's, it's a flare up of a chronic disease. And and then what I'm, the other thing I'm hearing is, well, two things, one is, when you have a lapse, what information can I get from this to help in the future? Like yes. it's an opportunity to learn instead of yes. an opportunity to beat myself up. You're going to unpack all the, it's called Q, we call it Q load. What was your Q load? Where, where is, were you subjected to like, I had a person who volunteered at a hospice organization that made her sit there and look at sugar. It was, there was a candy bowl in front of her. We finally decided she either had to quit or or quit. Those were two choices. <laughs> or they or move the sugar bowl, which they the, the volunteer place didn't want to do. And so she was just building up dopamine in her brain. And then she would leave there and go and binge at fast food. So you have to unpack it. What led up to it? What Not just the food, but... What was the stress that led up to it? The exposure to cueing? What was going on in your brain? And then affirm that they're not blaming themselves, and then ask them what tweaks they would make the next for the next go around. And so, and I mentioned this to you before. I, I think that for our mental health, our overall well-being, having a strong community is imperative. It's essential. And so you've created a place where people can learn life skills, where they understand more about food addiction. I'm assuming as well, what foods will serve you better and nourish your body mm -hmm. and help mm -hmm. you heal. But mm -hmm. the most important thing is it's you have this like people can talk and be together Yes. All the time. We broadcast 15 to 17 hours a day on Zoom around the clock. So we broadcast a block, we take a break, broadcast live people so that you can come in literally, even if you come in during the break, we've got a recording of a conference call every day. You can go and listen to that. It'll work the same way. Or I've got a library of over 80 videos that I've made or or people in my organization have made. So you can go and watch a video and you will get the same. It's um, 
it's that drive to belong. It's incredible when you get around people who are healthy, emotionally, mentally, physically, behaviorally, uh, positive people, your drive to belong will swing over and start to copy them. You're not even aware of it, but your drive to belong, your drive to fit in, your drive to be normal is the dominant drive in the brain. Because whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, there is one area where those two frameworks totally overlap, and that is you've got to be in a tribe to survive. So the, the Maslow's hierarchy, the, the highest need is for food, water, shelter, no. Your highest need is for the community that will get you food, water, shelter. So if you just can look on a screen, and we know this comes across Zoom, and, and we this is why we broadcast so many hours, all different kinds of programs, you're, you, you will be floated. You don't have to fight one darn thing. Your brain will float you over to, I don't want to eat that anymore. I don't understand why I don't want to eat that anymore. Well, it's because your mirror neurons are looking around and saying, what do these people do? We seem to spend a lot of time here. They're here all the time. What did they do? Oh, they don't eat that stuff? Oh, well, then we'll stop eating it too. It makes the whole thing easy. Because now when you go out to the kitchen instead of, oh, I know that's in the refrigerator and I shouldn't eat that. I should eat this first. But I can eat that. I'll just have a bite of it. But, it, you know, they made it for me. And the battle. Now when you go out to the kitchen... Because your drive to fit in has kicked in with healthy people, you have this bizarre thought. You go out <laughs> to the kitchen and you say, I want a clean meal. I, you know, just quickly before we go, like, I wonder too, though, if it's a, I'm craving something, I don't know what it is, you know what? that Zoom meeting is going on, there's people there. I'm just gonna hop in and pause. Like just take a second, maybe talk, maybe not, maybe just being there is enough. But but yeah, I think don't underestimate the power of connection and community totally. and, and it's, people. It's, it's running your life, even if you don't really know. Amanda, and, that is a great place to. Yeah, it's a place. Community, yes. community, community. So thank, you, thank so you so much for, for joining me. And I'm going to link um, Joan's website as well as um, the ARC, which is the program that we've been talking about, that website as well. There's tons of information in all of those places. And um, I promise you, you will find it incredibly useful. Um, and so with that, we have reached the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening and learning more about how mental health and society meet. Now go out and open up a conversation and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more of us in all your favorite podcast places. There's lots of things on our website, thementalsociety.com. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles, that hope and help are all around you. And until next Yay. time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise.